In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I want you to imagine, for a moment, a new product from a car maker. A new sedan from Volkswagen, a new truck from Ford, or a new normal regular car of some sort from Honda. Now, I want you to imagine a major American business news channel breaking into its regular programming to breathlessly cut to the president of Ford or Honda or whatever, triumphantly jumping out of this new car, arms raised above his head in triumph in this being national breaking news. It's, uh, it's not that far-fetched. Uh, because we are getting our first pictures now of this delivery uh, in Austin of the very first Cybertruck. And uh, as you see Elon Musk there. Phil, you want to talk about uh, what we're witnessing here? It's two years later than expected, but nonetheless, a pretty big moment here. Okay, fine. It's fun to hate on the Cybertruck and on Tesla CEO Elon Musk. But as much as Musk's recent antics have raised concerns and prompted mockery and as much derision as the design of the Cybertruck has received, Tesla still leads the world in electric vehicles by an unbelievable amount. Some would say an unsustainable amount, but still, right now it's all theirs. Today, those of us who hope that electric vehicles will replace fossil fuel-powered cars and play a role in leading us out of the climate crisis, we still depend heavily on Tesla and on Elon Musk. But for how much longer? What will 2024 bring for Tesla, for its owner, for the electric vehicle market, and especially for Canada? a country that faces more challenges than most when it comes to making electric vehicles a viable alternative. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Booth is driving senior writer, as well as the producer of both Driving.ca's Driving Into the Future panels and Motormouth podcasts. Hey, David. How you doing? I'm doing well. Why don't you, for uh, people who aren't into the weeds on the future of electric vehicles and Tesla in particular, and just because because it's a wild little vehicle, describe it for us. For somebody who's never heard of a Cybertruck, what would you tell them it looks like? George Jetson meets Ford F-150. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you were in the 50s trying to imagine what the pickup truck of the 2040s would look like. I'm guessing it would look a lot like the Cybertruck. It's, you know, angular, it's stainless steel. It's, I'm not sure it's supposed to appeal to. I can't see very many 
traditional truck loyalists going for it. I see a substantial uh, number of loyal Tesla owners deciding to either buy that instead of, say, a Model S or perhaps in addition to a Model S. It's different. It is that. Yes, three years ago when it was introduced, its differentness was seemingly more accepted than it is now. That goes against most norms because, you know, time goes by, we normally get more accustomed to odd things. But how much of that is due to uh, the perception of Elon Musk three years ago versus now? Oh boy, how long do you have? Uh, (laughs) We got time. Yeah, that's at least part of the deal. Mind you, when you think about it, the perception of him is now that he's gone pretty far to the right. And who do we associate with pickup truck buyers, people who are pretty far to the right? So um, it's a matter of building an audience by doing these political machinations for the Cybertruck or making it worse. I don't know. I won't linger on the politics of Elon Musk because, as you say, could fill an entire podcast. It's not what this discussion is about. Here we're talking about the year to come, which is... I think you would agree, a critical one for electric vehicles? Absolutely. And, you know, the problem with electric vehicles, like almost every subject in our society today, is that it's so polemic. It's either yes or no. It's either they're great or they're the worst things that ever happened in the world. So, you know, you either say that EVs are going to continue their rapid trajectory and increased growth and they're going to take over even sooner than the 2035 mandate, Mm -hmm. or you say they're going to slow down and they're going to tank. And the reality is, and it's so very difficult to explain this to people, and it doesn't make, I guess, for exciting news, but it's going to be somewhere in between. You know, the rate of increase of sales of EVs has slowed down. Uh, It'll probably continue to slow down. That's not a bad thing. The only problem with it is reaching the 2035 mandate we've set for ourselves here in Canada requires that we have uh, something called an S-curve growth. It means the rate of increase has to grow exponentially every year. And, you know, that's probably not going to happen. So there's neither doomsday nor should there be dancing in the streets. So how has Tesla as a brand evolved over the past year? Because, again, as a leader in the market, uh, a lot of this rises and falls with them. I would say the really number one story is that it has continued its market share dominance, perhaps not as much as before, but retained a significant, perhaps even surprising amount of that market share dominance, but it has sacrificed its profitability significantly. The average transaction price in North America of uh, Tesla a year ago or a year, a little more than a year ago now, was probably about 60,000 US dollars. It's now 50,000 US dollars. And as we all know, the Model Y and the Model 3 have dropped amazingly in prices. And that's why they've continued to sell like hotcakes and he's kept his market share. The one thing that everybody should note is that a lot of this is attributed to Musk and Tesla's brilliance. At least a portion of it is because they get about two billion U.S. dollars a year in um, EV credits that other companies have to buy for them because they haven't met various 
uh, state and provincial mandates. Hmm. And that works out to about a thousand, a little over a thousand dollars a car they sold. So th- that lets them still retain at least some profitability while being able to really cutthroat uh, their competition. So you can imagine they get a thousand dollars a car and the competition has to pay about five thousand dollars for a car for EVs they can't produce or sell in enough numbers. That creates a huge advantage and allows for much of this price competitiveness that Tesla now has. How close is that to changing? How fast are other companies moving on this? And will we see in 2024 a shrinking of that dominance? You know, nobody can keep up uh, having 70 or 60% dominance. GM once had that kind of dominance and that had to shrink. It's a matter of what's the stasis point. You know, uh, I mean, right now, you know, there's Tesla at 50% to half the market and everybody else at the other half. That's not sustainable. Neither is it as if they even have only 40% mm-hmm. and everybody else is fighting for the last 60%. That's not sustainable either. You know, all the manufacturers and all the models can't be sustainable if they're only selling 10 or 15,000 units each. So I'm not sure that it's going to be a banner year for uh, for any EV maker. There's, I mean, you know, Canada is one thing. We're doing pretty good. The American EV sales are really doing much worse. And, you know, for many traditional legacy automakers, the inventory days, the days from inventory to sale in the United States are twice as much for the typical legacy EV as for one of their own ICEs. Why is that? Do you want the straight answer? Yeah. People don't want them nearly as much people claim they do. I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, the average price, I mean, now I'm going to switch to Canada. The average price in Canada of an EV is $73,000. I mean, I will tell you that's why we don't have one. I would love to have an electric vehicle, but there's no way I'm affording one. Yeah, well, I mean, to put that into numbers for you, $73,000 is what the uh, average EV costs. The median after-tax household income of a a Canadian family of four is $68,000. Median means there's half of the people are living below that line, okay? That's half of the people who can't even get close to buying an average EV. When you factor in the myth of the $30,000 or uh, U.S. dollars are thirty-six or thirty-seven thousand Canadian dollar EV that's supposedly always around the corner. GM was supposed to have one this year. They won't have until at least twenty twenty-seven. They say I say twenty thirty. When you're looking for the average family looking for an EV equivalent for the uh, Honda Civic that they buy when they are trying to get a long-term, reliable one-car family transportation, there are no EVs. So that's a huge roadblock. And, you know, range anxiety, despite everything you read, is real. It is real. It's not for everybody. Not everybody who, um, like a lot of the owners, I'd say the vast majority of owners who currently have an EV don't suffer range anxiety. But the people that are not buying a range, uh, an EV, like myself, it is precisely because of range anxiety. They don't fit my driving habits at all. So, you know, range anxiety is real. There's high interest rates. Gas is not expensive, relatively. The conditions are not absolutely perfect for the rapid growth that many in the industry claim. 
You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, Canada's 2035 targets. Uh, maybe if you could just quickly give us um, an assessment of what those targets are and more importantly, like just where are we right now entering this year in terms of EV market penetration compared to that target? That's a fairly large subject. So nationally, if you include PHEVs and, and BEVs, that's battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, we're around 12%. By 2026, we have to be 20% and uh, 60% by 2030 and then full-on 100% by 2035. One of the big issues is how diverse the adoption has been. So I'll give you a, for instance, Quebec and BC have provincial subsidies that go on top of the federal $5,000 subsidies. I mean, you can get 12,000 bucks off a BEV in Quebec. So in Quebec, it's uh, the penetration is just below 20. In BC, it's just above 20. In Alberta, and I think for most of the prairies, it's barely above three. Right. So right off the bat, what are you going to do? Like maybe, you know, I don't think so, but maybe Quebec and BC could get close to 100% by 2035. The chances of Alberta doing so are honestly, they're nil. I mean, I'd say virtually nil, but they're nil. How could the government make it easier for more people to make the decision? Obviously, there's a long way to go. And in particular, uh, since you spoke about two things, there's the cost and there's the range anxiety. Uh, How much control does the government have over either of those things if they want to meet their targets? Well, cost-wise, that's a very interesting question. They're too expensive. And despite, again, what some people have said, battery costs went down, down, down. They used to be $1,000 a kilowatt hour. Now they're about $150, $160 US. Except in China, that hasn't decreased lately. And it's going to be pretty tough. You know, when you buy more stuff and you need more mines and you need more material, the laws of supply and demand don't say that that price of that material is going to go down, right? Mm -hmm. So it's tough to see how the manufacturers can make them less costly unless they give us inferior batteries which may be a solution or not. But it's tough to see how the government could put more money into subsidizing cars. So, I mean, there's two kinds of subsidies. There's the subsidy for the consumer. That's you buy a car and you get a certain amount of money. There's subsidies to the automaker to produce them. So far, Canada's put in about 30 or 40 billion into the manufacturer's subsidies. Those are the famous... Volkswagen and Stellantis and Northfold plants. In the States, they're planning on spending $300 billion. Oh, wow. And in the States, the, oh, it's the, the numbers in something called the Inflation Reduction Act, which I broke the story about mm, 14 months ago. The numbers are just, every time I look at them, uh, they blow my mind. And basically, if you build a battery in the States or in Canada, because we're trying to match them, Every battery somebody makes goes, like if Chevrolet makes a big 100 kilowatt hour battery, it can go out the door with $4,500 in subsidies. Every single one they make. Like it's, they're paying, the governments, either American or Canadian, are paying for one third of the cost of every battery that goes in every car. So on top of that, in the States, the consumers get 7,500 US dollars, which is about 10,000 bucks. 
So there's absolutely nothing the American government, I mean, they're putting roughly about $12,000 into every electric car that they're moving. In Canada, it's less, uh, de depending on which manufacturer. But anybody who buys a BEV gets $5,000 from the federal government. If you're buying in Quebec, you can get up to 8000 I think. And in the BC, it's either four or 5000 Add it all up, it's significant money. And that's why all the sales are there. Ontario doesn't have a provincial subsidy. So I suppose that's one way the province here could help it. But it really comes down to dollars and cents. And the fact is, can we afford to subsidize every EV until every have one has one? And I don't think we can. I don't think we have enough money. I don't think our economies can sustain that. So my guess is that unlike this consumer and manufacturer subsidy, I think the best thing that the government could do would be to direct all their monies to infrastructure, get rid of range anxiety, and then see if the market does switch, as everybody says, to uh, electric vehicles because they're a superior technology. I mean, at some point in time, we're going to have to let the... Let the market decide. My analogy would let the child go to university by himself. We can't hold his hand all the time. If the government's not going to do it and can't afford to do it, which, I mean, certainly it, it seems like we're spending a lot of money on this right now, what about market forces? Where are these Chinese electric vehicles that I have seen online uh, that apparently are being sold for like 10 or 20K and are ridiculously cheap? They're the tiny little, to your point earlier, they're the tiny little Honda Civic-like electric vehicles. Where are those? Well, I mean, the, the ones that cost 10,000 are actually much smaller than the Honda Civic. Right. Those are not really viable. We shouldn't look at those. What the Chinese can do is build a sort of Civic for not much, uh, that's battery powered, that's not much more than a Civic. There, that's, it's a huge elephant in the room. And, and you've talked about economy and politics. So think about this. The, the government has mandated that we you know, buy a certain amount of EVs a year, okay? The consumers. The average price is 73000 Eventually, we're going to run out of rich people. Yeah. The Yankees and the Europeans and the Japanese are really, really struggling to get anything below $45,000 Canadian. That's really difficult. They just can't do it. So the Chinese are looking at it and going, holy crap, we've got a $15,000 uh, advantage over them. They can get here for, it's a guess for anybody, but they could certainly get here with a decent car for less than thirty-five. They might get here for thirty thousand. Okay, so one of the byproducts of this EV mandate is once we get past twenty twenty-six or twenty twenty-seven, where I think the threshold of all the luxury buyers are like is around twenty to twenty-five percent. There's going to be no, not enough rich people to sustain the growth, and there won't be any cheap electric vehicles that are decent, fully functioning cars. And China's going to, it'll be, we'll be easy pickings. And basically, the biggest worry I would tell you in the industry is that the EV mandate could sacrifice our auto industry because it'll just make the Chinese cars um, impossibly attractive to resist. And um, that's not a good thing. I should note that they'd already be here, except that 
In the U.S., they have a 27.5% tariff on Chinese cars. Mm -hmm. And because automakers generally don't come to Canada without first setting shop in the U.S., they've resisted it. But the Americans don't have an EV mandate. We do. So I suspect that the Chinese will find it impossible to resist the temptation to come to Canada without first going into the United States. I'd say that's the biggest question for the entire auto industry going forward now that we have these mandates. So is it fair to say that it's a catch-22 then? We can't get cheap EVs here for consumers to buy without letting in uh, the Chinese market, which would then decimate our own manufacturing industry? Is that what I'm hearing? Pretty much exactly. Like uh, decimate might be a strong word, okay, but it would definitely hurt, hurt a lot. Everybody I talk to, uh, from manufacturers to various automaker agency groups, this is the number one topic. It's it's a problem, especially, and it should be a problem for our government. There again, I forget the exact number. Thirty seven point two billion we've pledged to, to the various battery makers, Stellantis, Northolt, and, uh, and and Volkswagen, to build cars here. Now we're talking about Honda. That'll cost us a bunch more money. That's a lot of money, okay? That's a lot of money to be giving uh, automakers over the next six or seven years to produce batteries. And what if, even with that subsidization, again, it works out to about 4000 US, $6,000 Canadian, subsidizing those automakers, they still can't be competitive because Chinese cars could be ten dollars or $15,000 cheaper. I mean, it's, boy, oh boy, it could get very unpretty. Let me ask you this lastly in the big picture. Are we at a tipping point politically for the appetite to subsidize electric vehicles? And I say that because, you know, you mentioned already how heavily uh, the United States is into this, which is all fine for now. There's a presidential election this year. Donald Trump, I believe, has promised to get rid of a lot of those supports for that industry. Canada does not yet have an election this year, but the latest we'll have one is next year. How polarizing is support for these vehicles? And will the results of the next couple of elections put our targets, our strategy, everything here at risk? Well, uh, I wrote about this in two articles recently, my Motormouth column. One was an open letter to Pierre Paul Levier. The other one was my predictions for 2024. Donald Trump has said that he'll get rid of the EPA dictum on emissions that essentially forces automakers to make more electrified product. I'm pretty sure he would also get rid of the consumer subsidy that's $7,500 that goes to the consumer. What I'm pretty sure he will keep is that Inflation Reduction Act, $4,500 per battery. It's more, it, it can vary, but I'm using an average number. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because pretty much all the states where those battery plants are going up, and they are going up rapidly, are either in loyal GOP states or swing states that he hopes to win in, a, uh, in an election. I can't see him cutting those subsidies out. It'd be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not a fan, uh, probably uh, normal for a Canadian. I don't even think he's that smart, but he is cunning. And the one thing he knows better than anybody is how to activate his base. I can't see him cutting off his base. Here in Canada, 
Oh, that's a tougher question. I wrote an entire letter about it, as I said to Pierre Paulivier. His mandate or his base requires him seemingly to trash anything that has Justin Trudeau's hands on them. Yeah. So that would be the EV mandate. Rumors are he's looking at a way to get rid of it. Rumors are also that he might resort to a, an emissions standard rather than a ZEV mandate that's cut the uh, emissions, tailpipe emissions enough that you sort of have to make a BEV. I counseled him not to do that because, frankly, he or pretty much any government is not smart enough to come up with a program that the automakers can't get around. My conclusion was that what he should do is change the EV mandate to an electrification mandate and add regular hybrids into the equation. He can sell it. It makes a good soundbite. Everybody trusts hybrids in Canada. There's a large loyal following. And yet he doesn't completely alienate those that truly believe in cutting emissions from cars and also that electric cars are the savior. So, I mean, it looks like he's going to be the next prime minister I hope we don't get the same polemics that they do in the, get in the States where they're just destroying something because somebody else's name is on it. Is there one thing that you'll be watching for in the first half of this year that will give you a sense of where we are going this year? Yeah, there is one thing. It'll, it'll seem pecune and arcane, but it's really important. Everybody thought that EVs are basically being bought by rich lack of a better word, downtown elite. Sure. And it is true. Like in Vancouver, it's 20%. It's a little more, I think, in Montreal. Toronto's much less. There's no subsidies. What really, really struck me is that Vancouver, you know, 20%, is not anywhere near the top community in British Columbia for EV adoption. Around the country, the most startling demographic I saw this year was that it's suburbanites, basically, that are buying a large number of EVs. Pretty much in any suburb you could mention in Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver, the market penetration for EVs is about two times higher than it is in Vancouver or in the big city. So in other words, Vancouver's at 20%, Coquitlam's at 40%. St. Lambert in Montreal or near Montreal is at 42%. Montreal's at 21%. Rough numbers, okay? And that's because they're just doing like a fleet operator decision. It's uh, what everybody calls TCO, total cost of ownership. They look at the cost of the car. Both those provinces are, are subsidizing them. Then they then look at cheap electricity charged at home. They make sure that their daily commute, which they do five days a week, is uh, well within the parameters of the range. And so they save a ton of money compared to gas. And they never have to use... Yeah, DC fast charger. So there's no range anxiety. It's the perfect marketplace hmm. for a, an EV. Right. The issue I have is is they're getting full up. I mean, the, the, those are usually two car families. Typically, they'll have one EV and one hybrid gas powered or something for a long trip. Once they get filled up, and you know, once the downtown cores get to say 25 percent, you know, there's a lot of poor people in downtown cores as well. Those two markets will be filled. That's all the low-hanging fruit. 
that's the low-hanging fruit. And that suburbanite business model, it's a business model. It's not really a, a driving sell. It's, they've literally looked at it like a business model. It's not transferable to Red Deer, Alberta, or, or North Bay, Ontario, or my hometown of sits in Quebec, okay? And we're not seeing the big numbers from those places. And so what's the third step now? It was early adopters. Now it's uh, the high milers. What's the third step? The future of what that third step is will determine whether we get the rapid growth that were being promised by politicians and proponents alike, or whether we'll face a little bit of the stalling like they're having in the United States. So honestly, that's the number one thing I'm looking at. David, thank you again. This was fascinating. Thanks very much for having me. David Booth, senior writer at Driving. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca or just head to any old podcast player where you can find all of our previous episodes. You will be scrolling down for ages and ages, but they're all there. You can hit us up if you'd like to offer us some feedback. I'm sure there are a few Elon Musk fans who are less than happy with me after this episode. Look, like I said, we all rely on the guy. I wish him the best. I just, uh, just can't stand him. Sorry. Anyway... If you want to give us feedback on that, you can find us at hello at the big story podcast.ca and you can leave us a voicemail 416-935-5935. The big story, as I mentioned, is in every single podcast player. If you've got a smart speaker in your home or your car or wherever you are, you can ask it to play the big story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>